My name is Money, and I've been attending community for, um, well, uh, well, since the very beginning. Since before the beginning, really. I'm not all bad. Some people don't know how to handle me, but give me a little bit of credit, okay? The way people treat me sometimes, it just, uh, it rips me apart. It practically tears me in two. I'm for you, not against you. I'm looking for a relationship here. But I don't think I'm the answer to all of your problems. I can't necessarily make all your dreams come true, but I think I can actually make you happy. Looking for a relationship with us. Anybody else felt like that relationship can be a bit complicated at times, right? Uh, has that relationship ever kept you awake at night? And is it just me? Where, where maybe you were hit by that expense you didn't see coming, the medical bill, right? The appliances that break, the car repair, or better yet, for some of us, you remember that first car repair right after you started paying back your student loans, right? You're like, I'm doing this adult thing, and then the white smoke starts coming out of the back of your car, and you're like, what is happening right now? Like, that's the kind of stuff that will keep you up at night when you have that relationship with money where you're asking, like, am I going to have enough? What happens when all of those hit at once, right? Like the medical bills, the appliances break down, the car repair, because it always comes in threes, right? At least that's been my experience. Now, I am no stranger to the loss of sleep, irritability, and that incessant checking of the account to make sure we're covered, right? Because because I have had all of those happen. And, and, and I wish I could say that I was some sort of super spiritual giant. Like, when the storms of life blow in, I just, God, I trust you. Right? I, I'm more like, is this going to work? Like, are we, how, like that's, what, that's what happens. We have these complicated relationships with, with money. It's just, it just is. And I think I've come to realize just how complicated my relationship has been in that I've, I've, I've identified a trigger. You know what a current trigger for me is when it comes to money? The housing market. Now, now let me say this. Not because I'm looking to buy, but because the two times that I sought to sell, it wasn't like this. Okay, so like, like the two times that I sold houses, like John just sold a house and it took him like 30 seconds. Like, I'm not even sure he listed it. I think he just like, I'm thinking about selling my house. And people are like, I'll give you more than you're asking for. Right? Like, that was not my experience. Okay, so um, the first house that we had to sell, this was our first house, my wife and I's first house. And this house was amazing. Of course it was. It's our first house. And it was worth so much because it was our first house. And we always think our house is so much better than everybody else does. Six months it told us, took us to sell that, that first house. Six months of covering two mortgages with two little boys on a single income. Yeah, that was a few sleepless nights. And I thought, okay, we've, we've passed that. We've recovered from it. We are good. Then we went to sell our second house. Now, let me tell you a little story about the second house. The second house that we're selling, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this. It wasn't a destination location, okay? 
there wasn't a lot of people clamoring to move to our 2,000-person population country town, all right? Like, it wasn't, like, high on the market. Um, and to make matters worse, I had just uh, invested to build an addition onto the home, which at the point of its appraisal, appraised for $15,000 higher than 18 months later when I went to sell it. We lost $15,000 in our property value in 18 months. And then it took a year to sell it. Two mortgages for a year. And then when we sold it, we were so upside down on it that we got to pay another year on it. That was fun. <laughs> Nothing says the joy of that relationship with money like that. Oh, and we had medical bills, our car broke down, and the refrigerator, this is no, I can't make this up, the refrigerator went out twice. Twice. And you know how it always goes out right after you do all your grocery shopping? <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's, it's a challenge, right? Have you ever had that experience in life where you could literally feel your credit score ticking downward? But then listen, then you start to realize how much of our own value you put into those three little numbers. You start asking the question, what does those three numbers say about me? And if it's not those three numbers, it's other numbers. It's your investment portfolio numbers. It's your savings account number. All it takes is a good old-fashioned crisis to reveal to us how much stock, energy, emphasis, time that we really put into this relationship with money. Nothing unlike a little market volatility, right, to make you wonder, like, oh, my goodness, what's going to come next, and how is this going to affect my retirement? Nothing like a house that won't sell, an overspending spree, a lavish vacation borrowed on the bonus that you thought was going to come but never did. All of that will make you rethink, what's my relationship with money and really who is in charge? And here's the other part of that. Even when we recover from that, those kind of things, or we work really hard to make sure those kind of things don't happen to us, the, the alternative is true. We cling so tightly to the money that we're not going to let it go because we're not going to be left in that kind of position ever again or ever. So what would it take in your life to reveal your relationship with your money? To reveal how much time, energy, devotion, stress that you place in your money? And I think this is a really important question for us because the answer of it has spiritual implications. Now, we are in the second, or excuse me, we're in the third week of this series, the last week of this series, where we've been examining our relationship with money. Now, we know money is not in of itself a bad thing, right? It's just a tool. It, it's, it can be a tool for good, or it can be a tool for chaos. But it's a tool, and a pretty helpful one. I mean, we've got to buy the groceries, pay the bills, get the car, right? It's, it's a helpful tool to have. But what we've been examining is how do we have a healthy relationship with our money? If we can imagine money being a person that, that wants to pull up a chair next to us and talk to us, what would, that, what would that money say to us? 
And I think that's the question we want to ask again. Let's assume money wants to say to us, I want to help you in your journey of following Jesus. Now that seems like an odd statement for a Christian to make because we are really good at either disregarding, demonizing, or making money into something it wasn't meant for altogether. But what if? What if money was to say to you something like, you know you could really leverage me to do a lot of good in this world? What, what, if, what, if, what if money were to say something like this to us? You know you make a lot of me? And I just kind of wonder how responsible you're being with me. If, if, if money could talk to us, what would it say? Well, I think one of the things that it would say to us is that I am a much better servant than I am a master. Let me say that again. I think money would say I'm a much better servant than I am a master. But too many of us live under its mastery. Now, again, we want to shake that off. We want to say, not me, not at all. But statistics actually bear out that at least nine of ten of us sitting in this room right now are stressing about our money. Statistics would show 90% of people talk about the impact and stress that money brings into our lives. Another 65% of people feel like they have these insurmountable, insurmountable financial difficulties that there's no way you're ever going to get through. Some of you call those college loans. I mean, seriously, let's, let's think about that. Some of you right now are calculating, I'm going to have grandkids when those are done. And we think, am I ever going to get away from this? Am I ever going to get beyond this? 40% of people wish that they could just have a fresh start. Anybody, maybe it's just me, watch Lottery Dream Home on HGTV? I mean, like, it's a great show. But you watch it and you go, they got a do-over. How does that happen? I want the do-over. 25% of us make purchases that we ultimately regret because we made them in stress. Any, any impulse buyers when you're a little stressed? Right? You're like, oh, that looks amazing. And then like the next day you're like, oh, what did I do? I'm, I'm still convinced that's exactly how they make timeshare work. <laughs> These are issues that affect a huge number of us. And most of us can relate to them in a number of different ways. We feel those stresses. Now, I want to say this on the, I feel like I need to say this on the front end. The stresses we feel about money aren't always something within the scope of our control. Some of us have legitimately experienced those moments of unemployment or underemployment that didn't afford you the kind of financial peace and security that you would have wanted. Some of us have legitimately come from situations where we faced these difficult medical issues that left us grasping and wondering if there was ever going to be enough there. Those are legitimate concerns. Not every stress and worry that we have about money is because we've made bad decisions, okay? But that being said, now that we got that out, let's, let's just take a breath and go, 
Yeah, but a lot of the stress that we bring about with our money is because we've been mastered by it, and we're living out what we call me first living. Me first living. Now, now let's see. Me first living has an equation, and it's an equation that I think many of us will be familiar with. And the equation is live, save, give, right? That, that's, that's an equation that many of us can understand. Like, you get paid, and then you live. You pay your bills, you buy your groceries, you go out to dinner, and breakfast, and lunch. You buy the summer wardrobe, the new kicks, the new gadget. You do all that stuff. And then, if, by chance, towards the end of the month, or the end of the pay period, you still have some left, then you're like, then I probably need to sock some back for, you know, the next vacation or the retirement or for some of us, we're thinking about our kids' graduation. Although for some of us, we're like, no, we're not even going there yet. And then if all of that is good and we have just a little bit left, then we think I should really give some of this away. And, and so we give to a charity or to the church or whatever, and, 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 and many of us have these really good intentions, like we're going to do good stuff, but we've, we've so lived out of this equation, live, save, give, that by the time we get to the third component of that, those good intentions often evaporate. And here's the really problematic piece. Some of us are so good at the living part that we outlive what we just earned, which means we're borrowing from the live part of the equation for next month. You know what we call that? Debt. And debt drives into that next month and that next month creating the cycles of stress that we just talked about. And all the while we are convinced ourselves that I can manage money as it manages us. It exercises a kind of mastery over our lives. It grabs hold of us even as we grip it. Now, here's a great illustration. I don't know if you know this, but in, in like Southeast, Southeast Asia, in, in India, monkeys, who we, are just, we just love, we love going to the zoo and seeing them, they are seen as the same kind of pests that we would suggest are kind of like, you know, raccoons or possums or whatever. And so in Southeast Asia, they have, they have this way of, of catching monkeys, which I find absolutely fascinating. What they do is they get a coconut, and they, they drill a hole in the coconut, or poke a hole in the coconut, and then they fill the coconut with sticky rice. And then the monkey comes and sees the coconut, sticks its hands in, grabs the sticky rice, and then when it's made a fist, it can't pull its hand out. But here's the problem. It won't let go of the sticky rice. Literally, if it just let go of the sticky rice, it could pull its hand out and go. Instead, it is captured by the very thing that it tried to capture. And it holds on, and it's stuck. And I wonder if that might not be the case for some of us. Where at times, in thinking we were mastering money, it was mastering us, and we reached in and we grabbed the sticky rice, and we can't let it go, no matter the chaos, the disorder, and the dysfunction that it has meant for our lives or is meaning in our stress levels. 
And I think we need to, I think we need to at least ask the question, what, what creates this sticky rice feel for me? What, what, is, what, is, what is most often the ways in which I try to visualize or imagine money, in which it becomes my sticky rice? And I think there's a few different reasons why this can happen. The first one is, let's just face it, security. Like, money just makes us feel good, especially when we have it, right? And we want to make sure that I have enough of it so that if anything happens, I'm going to be taken care of. And so we have a tendency to hold on tightly. I once was doing some premarital counseling for a couple. And when I'm doing premarital counseling, always money is one of our points of focus. Because very rarely do two people enter into a relationship with the same concept about money. And already there had been some frays and fractures along the way. And the reason being is that the one was a spender, but not, not an um, irresponsible spender. The other one was, I would say, a hoarder, not a saver. And what I mean by this is, is, and when we started probing into this, what we discovered is that the person that hoarded it had grown up impoverished. And then they started making good money. And they said, that will never happen to me again. And they went so far to the side of the security piece where they wouldn't spend, and they, they basically shamed the person in the relationship anytime they spent anything on anything. That's, that's, that's sticky rice. That's what happens. The second thing is personal worth and value. <sighs> Never in the north side of Chicago would this be an issue right? Like never, like we never measure our value and worth by what we drive, how we decorate, where we dine. It's a marker, isn't it? It says something about us. And what it says about us becomes our sticky rice. The third thing, power. Wealth makes us believe that we have control over our life. We're the masters of our own destiny, which then gives birth to the next one, which is independence. Not only am I a master of my own destiny, I am not going to have to rely on anyone at any time for anything. And then the fifth one is is pleasure. With wealth, we, we can indulge ourselves. We can make ourselves feel good by the things that we love and enjoy. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that until it becomes sticky rice. Now, I could legitimately go down this list and identify with every one of them, okay? I could, I could say, yep, that's, that's me, that's me. But there are two that stand out for me. And here's what I've learned about money. The two that stand out to me, the, the ones that typically become my sticky rice, are often the result of some historic thing that has been a part of my life that has led me to see money a certain way. Most of us, most of us don't track back there, Right? We're just in the mix, we're in the fray dealing with money, and we never sort of go back and go, like, why do I think that way? So my two are security and pleasure. Security, because I know what it felt like to not have that. There was a time when I was living paycheck to paycheck and even beyond that, where now if my savings account gets below a certain level, I am full-blown freak-out mode right? Like, like I do, there's just something that happens to me, and it creates this sticky rice feel. 
The other one is, I'm just going to be honest with you, pleasure. When you're broke, ain't a lot of that. When you start having some, you're like, oh, I want that. I like that. That feels good. Let's go get that, right? Because there's just some, now, I will tell you, those two aren't always hand in hand, right? Those don't play well together. Security and pleasure don't all, in fact, they sometimes battle each other and it creates some tensions in my head and in my heart. But I think all of us can probably point to a way in which, in which those things begin to dominate our lives. So, so I want you to think about that. What causes the sticky rice for money in your life? Of those five, when are you most apt to be controlled or managed or mastered by your finances rather than exercising mastery over it? Now, here's the thing that I find helpful. Jesus has a lot to say about money in the Scriptures. And and I'm sure you've heard this said. This is sort of a Christian cliché. But I think it's really important. Jesus actually has more to say about money in the Scriptures than he does a prayer. There's something about that. And I think it's, be, I think it's rooted in what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Listen to, what, listen to what it says. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When Jesus looks at money, he sees a competitor for devotion. Does that make sense? A competitor for devotion. He's saying both God and money want something from us. They want our allegiance. They want our time. They want our energy. They want our focus. They want our vision. They want our dreams. They want our aspirations. And Jesus says, you don't have enough to go around. Either you're going to love one or you're going to love the other. You don't get get to love both. In fact, there's this this great song that says says this from, from, uh, from Jill Phillips. Listen to these words here. No one serves both God and money. They're like east and west. You're either facing one or facing the other. So you decide which one to love the best. This is the challenge for all of us. To ask the question, like, which direction am I facing? Which direction am I? What what has my heart? What, What has mastery over my life? What have I given myself to? Now, now Jesus doesn't just let us hang there. He doesn't just say you can't serve both. He then goes on to talk a little bit more about how we should be related to money. Which, I'm going to say this. There are times when Jesus says things that I find to be extremely unhelpful. This next piece would be one of those. So let's check this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Done. Good. Done. Hey, sermon over. Just don't worry about it. You're good, right? about what's your life or what you'll eat or drink or about your body or what you wear. Is not life more than food or the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any of you add one single hour to your life by worrying? Oh, that's so easy, right? Just stop worrying. Like, that's your action step. Just go home this week and don't worry. But Jesus doesn't stop there, and that's the key. 
See, Jesus doesn't typically just say, stop doing something without ultimately then say, start doing something else. It's what I call replacement therapy. We need something to replace the very thing that we're stopping. So Jesus says, stop worrying, but then he, then he in the very next moment says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, don't just stop worrying. I want you to start seeking. I want you to give yourself in absolute and utter devotion to the kingdom way, the way of Jesus, the best way of living in this world, the way in which God gets God's way in the restoration of all things and the making of things beautiful. In essence, he's flipping the script on us. He's saying, instead of me first living, why don't you try seek first living? Which seek first living then flips the equation. It is then give, save, and live. Rather than the last thing you do, if you can and if it fits, you start with an act of generosity, an act of contribution, a reprioritization of the way in which you handle your finances. And I want to tell you, it's not just about the giving. It's about a value shift. Something in our values shifts when we all of a sudden start to think that what I've been afforded, what I've been given, is nothing more than that which I'm to steward for something more than myself. Like, I am responsible with this. And then once we've taken that leap and done that thing, then all of a sudden everything else as a part of that begins to align differently. You start to see the rest of the money differently than you once had. When we seek first God's kingdom and prioritize it means that we loosen our grip on our finances. Andy Stanley says this, when you make giving a priority, something happens, I love this, something happens inside of you, especially when it's financially challenging to do so. It's like you loosen your grip on a value system whose motto is money is the key to your life of happiness and safety. I want you to, I want you to listen to the story of one of the folks as a part of Community Christian who went through a, a cap budgeting class and, and hear about this internal shift that they talk about in this video. I'm Rich Benema, along with my wife, Kelly, my sons, Josh and Nathan, and my daughter, Faith. We've been attending community for about seven years now. Tithing has never really felt like a burden or an obligation. It's something that I consider, it's something I want to do. It's something that I feel fortunate to be able to do is that I have been given so much. I've been blessed so much, not just monetarily, but spiritually and in so many other ways by God, that to be able to give him something back is something that I'm very willing and eager to do. I give first, I save second, and then I allocate where my spending has to go. And it works because that's the plan. And when you follow the plan and you stick to the plan, and if it's a good plan, it works. The benefits of that are that you get to achieve your goals. When I'm giving, I'm helping move the Jesus mission forward. When I'm saving, that means I'm gonna get to retire. I'm gonna get to send my 
kids to college. It isn't just about what can my money do for me today, it's what can my money do for me 10, 20, 30 years from now, and what can it do for me in eternity? The CAP course is a budgeting class, and that's all it is. The first week we talk about the importance of a budget, the second week we start talking about the system, because it's a slightly different system, about how to organize and allocate your money. And then the third week, we start talking a little bit about spending. There's also the spot for encouragement and for assurance and just saying, you're going in the right way or try going this way and just getting people to go in the right direction and keep going in that direction. So if you need to figure out how to get and implement a budget, this is something that could help you. One of the benefits of having a budget, of sticking to a budget, of, of saving, is that you don't have to be chasing money. If I had to be worrying about, oh, I gotta pay for this, or I gotta afford this, or I gotta save for that, and that means that I gotta go get this other job, or get this other pay, well, then I might be chasing after something that I don't enjoy doing, that I don't like to do, something that's adding more stress and burden to me. I think the biggest blessing is contentment. I feel that I have not just what I need, but what I didn't even know that I would have wanted. What can you do but attribute that to a loving God who gives good gifts? I love that last statement. A loving God who gives good gifts. I would encourage you, if, if, if you're realizing right now that maybe you're fist deep into a coconut with some sticky rice, that, that you would begin to think about maybe a cap course, some sort of budget course that can, that can at least begin to help you reprioritize your finances. Because that shift is substantial and it's beautiful. I, I feel like I, I'm just going to share a little bit of my story. So... As all of that chaos was unfolding, something else had already started taking place earlier in my life. I came to faith at 25 years old, okay, 25 years old. And uh, this whole giving to things just wasn't a part of my agenda up to 25. And then I started going to church. I became a Jesus follower, started going to church. And every Sunday morning, they would pass these buckets and people would drop some stuff in, right? And, and I was like anybody, um, I would try to figure out, okay, which restaurant are we going to after lunch? What's the, what's the potential cost of that? And then I will give whatever is not that amount, right? So like, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. But then I noticed some people had these, and this is back old school style. They had these envelopes and they would put money in the envelopes and they would send the envelopes. And I, I talked to a friend of mine who'd been a Christian for a long time and I said, what's the envelopes all about? Like, I don't like to be left out of things. Like, if there's something cool about envelopes, I want the envelopes. He's like, well, those envelopes are for tithing. I said, tithing, what's that? And he says, giving 10% of your income. And I went, oh, what? Like, people do that? And he said, yeah. And I said, I don't know that I want the envelopes so bad now. Well, then I got in my head, and for like two months, I'm like, what's this tithing? So I call, this is no joke. I called my friend, and I said, Hey, Ben, I got a quick question. He's like, what? And I said, it's that tithing thing you were talking about. And he's like, okay. And I said, is that gross or net? 
Like, like I started down that path, right? Like, that's, let's really get down to brass tacks. But then, as a sergeant in the military, I looked at my wife and I said, we got to be all in. Like, we got, we, got to, we got to be all in. So we just we made the leap. And at first it was good and it was easy. And it is easy until it's not. And then when chaos settles in and unforeseen situations pop up, if it's not become a regular patterned rhythm of your life, when that thing happens, it will become so disturbing and unsettling, that'll be the first thing to go. But my wife and I, we kept looking at each other in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of two mortgages basically for two years. And I would look at her and she would look at me and we would say like, nope, first deal goes to the first deal. Like we got to make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. And so we kept leaping out and making, and making that commitment. We're going to give, we're going to give, we're going to give. And I can't tell you, I'm not going to go into all the ways in which God was faithful. At one of those times when my car broke down in those two years of paying two mortgages, a buddy of mine shows up out of nowhere with his tools and says, I'm going to be taking your car, I got it. Because that's how God works. One of the times when our refrigerator, one of the two times the refrigerator broke down, we had some friends show up, say, hey, uh, yeah, nobody should have to lose all their food twice. So here, let's, let's, go to, let's go to Walmart. God has been Johnny on the spot every step along the way as we've, as we've trusted, as we've leaned in, as we've listened, as we've been obedient. But that, is, that has been a shift, and it's a shift that I want to invite you into. It's a shift in which the first thing I want to say to you is what would it look like, maybe at least for two months, just to say two months, we're going to flip the equation. We're going to give this a shot. Now, I have, I, I have been personally very committed to giving to the local church, always have been. But maybe it's a charity. Maybe it's something. Do something that says, I'm committing to giving first. Play that out for two months. Just, just see how that feels. And then I want you to track how that feels. That's the second thing I want to invite you to do. Start to ask yourself the question, where do I feel the tensions and why do I feel the tensions? In what way might my money be mastering me right now? And in what ways can, can God help me to break that entrapment I have to my finances so that instead of it managing me, I can manage it Two months, that's all I'm asking for. Two months. And see how that plays out in your life. See how the internal value system shifts in your life about how you handle money. Because the same one who says you can't have two masters ultimately ends up saying later there is only one real master. And he says it this way. I want you to take a look at what he says then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, you're going to have to flip the script. You're going to have to change the equation. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying to them, 
He's saying, I'm, I'm the one that wants to master your life. And he is a good and faithful master, a good and faithful Lord. He's the kind of Lord that gives good gifts to his children, who leads us beside still waters, who watches over our souls. He's, he's the kind of master that really can be trusted because he embodied this other equation not with his finances, but with his life. That's what we do when we serve communion. We're remembering the kind of equation that he, he lived out of, give first. He gives of himself to this world. He gives his body broken on a cross for us. He gives his blood emptied out so that you and I could enter into this beautiful and profound relationship with the God who hung the stars in the skies, the moon, boundaried the seas, and says, I own all the banks in all the world. Because you can enter because you can trust me. So I want to invite you to do something as we as we prepare to, to remember this meal. If you want to do this physically in your mind, I, I would encourage you. Maybe there's something in your pocket, your phone, credit card, wallet, that is representative of your financial self. It's amazing how much of our financial selves we carry right here, right? Within about two seconds, I can give you the three numbers that identify my life. It's right here. And, and I have to realize that I can't, I can't serve this and this. So I have to make a decision. It's not a one-time decision. You're not going to walk away today and go, I made the decision. Tomorrow you're going to have to make it again. When the car breaks, you've got to make it again. When they have cutbacks at work, you got to make it again. When your parent gets sick, you got to make it again. And trust that this one is really good at taking care of us. Lord, I confess all the times in my life, one unfortunately, I've been left with my fist in the coconut. When I've been managed and mastered by the thing that I thought I had control of. And I ask, Lord, that today for me and for everyone here, you help us to flip the script, change the equation, and live out the seek first life rather than the me first life. In Jesus' name, amen.